Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today we speak with Luba Greenwood, who works in strategic business development and corporate ventures at Verily, an alphabet company. Luba brings to Google her experience in pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and digital health industries, not to mention her expertise in building and investing in innovative technology companies. She's on the board of Mass Bio and Brooklyn Immunotherapeutics and serves as an advisor to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode, we'll dive into Luba's work across the intersections of healthcare and technology. Let's get right into it. Okay, it's my pleasure today to be speaking with Luba Greenwood. Luba is healthcare and tech executive, and she's actually a strategic business development and corporate ventures lead at uh, Google Life Sciences. Luba, thank you for joining me. Um, maybe you can tell us, what does that mean to be a strategic business development and corporate ventures lead? Sure. So uh, we in companies such as actually, interestingly, both in tech and in healthcare, there are groups that are specifically responsible for investing and uh, making strategic investments for the company and also business development. And it could be usually in larger companies, it is more on the buy side type of investing, that the type of business development that you do. So like M&A stuff? Yes. M&A, licensing, co-development, partnerships, and joint ventures. And so this is really interesting to me in, in healthcare and technology, there are so many different kind of subsectors. Do you have a, a sort of area of expertise or interest um, within healthcare, digital tech, et cetera? Yes, absolutely. So I, I do come, my background is uh, from science and therapeutic space, uh, as well as medical device and diagnostic space. So my concentration at that intersection of digital health and the intersection of tech and life sciences has really been more focusing on the life sciences piece of it. So for example, discovery tools, drug development tools, knowledge management tools for clinical workflows, as opposed to more consumer-based type of place. Gotcha. So a lot of these things that you're focusing on are to um, essentially expand the capacity of your, your company, of your organization. That's correct. Interesting. Um, are you able to talk about uh, any of the deals that you've done either in your current job, or maybe we can stay in safer water and talk about some of the deals you've done in, in your past work that you're really excited about, something that was uh, game-changing for your organization? Sure. I mean, so some of the deals that, and you see this as, uh, which are still to this day are considered some of the most exciting and largest digital health deals for pharma have been MySugar uh, acquisition. This was when Roche has acquired MySugar, which is a chronic disease management platform for diabetes, um, and Flatiron Health, of course, which is, was really a first of the type of acquisition for a pharma company. And, and really the reason for that is, as you know, with precision medicine, currently from pseudo companies, biotech companies are moving to understanding more of uh, what happens to clinical trials during clinical trials and understanding individual level as well, how particular patients respond to treatment. What do you see as, as sort of the most um, exciting growth areas in, in this really vast uh, sea of tech applied to healthcare? You know, are there any segments that you, you're especially interested to kind of see how pan out? 
Yes, absolutely. So I would say, so one area that uh, you're very familiar with is, of course, discovery tools, computational biology. We are still learning biology of many of the diseases. As an example, we're still learning what causes neurodegeneration, um, such as in diseases like Alzheimer's, what is the true impact of inflammation, and also understanding the importance, for example, of immunology outside of cancer and autoimmune diseases. Uh, we're looking into, for example, intersection of immunology micro biome. So we're seeing many companies that are in that base in, in sort of compute, computational biology and discovery tool space, and also companies that are mapping out, for example, the brain or um, mapping out the immune system, as an example, which is one of the projects that Verily is doing. So that's just one component, right? The discovery piece, the discovery tools piece. I would say the second uh, most interesting component and where I see quite a lot of exciting companies, and I would like to see even more, is in drug development and these are drug development tools that when we talk about personalized medicine, these are really the tools that enable that. So as an example, there are companies that are emerging that are providing sensors and building out platforms for basically what's called virtualization of clinical trials, right, where you can collect, for example, real-world evidence. Uh, you can capture better patient-reported outcomes. You can continuously collect data. You can have a better enrollment engine. We're seeing some companies in that space. So all of that is really with an effort to uh, expedite clinical trials, reduce adverse events, and, and ultimately really reduce the cost of clinical trials as well. I'd say probably for me, the third and another very exciting area is the knowledge management piece area. So if you look at cancer, as an example, over 70% of cancer patients are seen by community hospitals, actually. So there is a big demand for patient care pathways. And we see actually great efforts in the phase. One example, uh, I am very lucky and privileged to be on the advisory board for council for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which mm -hmm. is really the world's leading cancer institute. And it's trying to bring, and it's not just trying, it actually is bringing that oncology expertise to the world and to these community hospitals. And they're doing it by tech. They're building comprehensive and state-of-the-art clinical decision support tools that are really quite different. And actually, in the other area that you see is diabetes. One of the things that I think is underestimated is that diabetes, we all know it's on the rise. We know that endocrinologists are, the number of endocrinologists are declining. One thing I think um, is important to note, if you look at actually population to endocrinologist ratio, even within 20 miles of a particular patient, there is usually about, in the United States, one endocrinologist for 40,000 diabetic children. There's one endocrinologist for 30,000 adults that are under 64, and there's about one endocrinologist for 6,000 diabetics that are over 65. So you can see a huge need here for, just like in oncology, a need for knowledge management tools for primary care doctors and, and also chronic disease management tools. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a huge area of need. I'm kind of curious, you know, I have a lot of uh, listeners who are other startup entrepreneurs and would be curious to understand, how does a company get on your radar? How do you, you know, do deal flow? Um, how do you get out there and meet promising technology? Is it all inbound? Um, I know you're involved in mass bio. Does that play a role? 
Absolutely. So there, there are two pieces, right? And what MassBio has played a tremendous role in this, which is MassBio has worked with the industry and biotech and pharma companies in Massachusetts and Boston in particular to bring the biotech companies here and not just biotech companies, but create an atmosphere and a place where young entrepreneurs, well, not necessarily young, they can be any entrepreneurs that are graduating from, uh, from graduate schools or from schools nearby. It provides them tools such as mentors, seed money, information about how to get grants, not dilute funding. There is an amazing ecosystem that has been built up by MassBio and, and others over the last 15 years in Massachusetts. So in Boston, it is uh, relative to other places, I would say in the U.S. and even relative to California, it is much easier to get access to somebody like myself or my colleagues, my other strategic venture or venture colleagues in the space because we are we're basically within a mile, two mile radius of each other. You have pharma companies, you have biotech companies, you have tech companies. Most of us are in the waterfront or Kendall Square area, which is very right. close. There are many events that are put together by industries uh, and by MassBio as well. So the ecosystem is very important and not to be underestimated. So it's much easier to get access to me and then to other investors here in Boston. Sure, that makes sense. I think, you know, density is a big deal. I'm always uh, nervous of how loud I speak about business stuff in Kendall Square. I'm just not sure who's in the coffee shop at the next. That's right. Or the elevator. (laughs) Or the elevator, right. Uh, I'm curious, we can maybe veer off your your actual um, job role. And I'd like to hear more about some of your board work. So just, you know, browsing through your your CV, you're you're a board member at MassBio. Jeannie Alice is also a member of MassBio. And I see some others like Brooklyn Immunotherapeutics. Tell me about how you think about board work or these um, organizations that you put money into or, or are you giving back to the community? Yeah, so thank you for asking me about that because for for me, it's very important to be involved in the community. That is how I give back to the community. That is how I give back to startups and to companies in the space. So uh, as an example, uh, MassBio is a nonprofit organization and I'm quite involved with MassBio and the leadership there. And one of the things that we just recently did was working with Bob Coughlin and Kendall O'Connell and board members and Deloitte in, in actually building out the plan for Boston to be that digital health hub in, in Boston. So as I mentioned today, getting funding, anything from seed money to, you know, Series A to pretty much any, you know, even grow fund and, and further on an IPO and crossover, that is Boston is a place to be. There's a lot more competition in digital, what's considered digital health, different people define it differently. But ultimately, if you look at real, actually where your company sits, uh, which is a real convergence of life sciences and tech, the center really is Boston. So we are one of the things that I'm excited about working with MassBio and with the stakeholders here is actually working with the community to make this the best type of environment for those digital health companies so that they can grow here, they can stay here, they get funding here. And most importantly, I think for digital health as opposed to therapeutics is we bring in the people that help them build business models and revenue generating models. Because as you know, digital health is a very different type of player and business models are still growing and they're quite different. So we're providing that place for them. That's from Bio and it has been an, uh, a wonderful experience. And for example, as I mentioned, I'm an advisor to Dana-Farber and that to me has just been such a privilege um, of seeing 
such amazing research and work done by the clinicians, scientists there. And really, again, there, it's, it's giving back to the community. It is helping with translational research, helping with tools that make it a better experience for patients and also not just experience, but better outcomes for patients as well, which is what Dana-Farber is working on. And then there are some other companies that I'm very proud of and excited about, such as Brooklyn Immunotherapeutics that I'm on a board of. It's an immunotherapy company. Do you know immunotherapy is very exciting research area right now. They have candidates in the clinic uh, with some promising results, uh, which has also been very exciting. And then Intrinsic Health. Intrinsic Health is another company I'm on a board of. What I like there is they are using actually amino acid platform to restore protein functions. And, and they are going after real unmet medical needs. So in oncology, cystic fibrosis. So again, my interest there is supporting that ecosystem and supporting really great data and really great science coming out in the therapeutic space for unmet medical needs. As someone working in the space, we're grateful for your, your help. You know, I'm reminded of a, a tweet I saw from Jeffrey Lowe, who's a, a partner at Andreessen Horowitz in their biofund. And he wrote that the more time he spends with AI and healthcare, quote, the more I see the solutions are here, but the business models are to be invented. So, so I'd like to go back to your comment about bringing in people to help with the business models. Can you maybe just add some color to that, some concrete examples of, uh, of where you've seen the evolution of a business model uh, of a digital health startup or a health IT startup? Yeah, so uh, so this is actually quite different, right, uh, for digital health, the business model versus therapeutic. For business models in the U.S., you do have some examples of value-based care, and you have some examples of bundling. So this is where you see Medicare Advantage, you have bundling and surgery, and we know that this trend will continue, and that's why you see emergence of many companies in the Medicare Advantage um, surgery, medical device, and sensor business, because that is where you do have revenue generation models in that space, anywhere where you have actual value-based care system already set up. You also have emergence of companies like Haven, right, which is the J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon company, and there are a number of similar players, and they are going in after opportunity to go after self-insured employers. That is also uh, an emerging space that's also a place where business models are emerging. And you do see if I were a company today and I wanted to go in and provide tools for value-based care system, I would go after Medicare Advantage, surgery bundling, and uh, self-insured employer tool space. You also see uh, models of risk-sharing models, right, where companies are taking on risk to manage patients. And again, that goes back to Medicare Advantage, self-insured employers. And so, again, there are some, but still need to be tested models out there, as long as, of course, you still need clinical validity, still need for many of these companies come out of the piloting phase with payers to really, truly show improvement and outcomes at a lower cost. And you see these tools becoming better. For providers, you also see an improved appetite for improving their workflow, improving their knowledge management, as I mentioned before. So there's definitely area there for revenue generation. And then the other ones are, again, this is a place that you see as the life sciences industry goes after. And as an investor, this is an area of interest are diagnostic companies, and especially in genomic testing, where you see a movement to direct-to-consumer business. You're also seeing a movement out of hospital central labs and into more point of care. So that's definitely an opportunity 
there. Another opportunity is, you know, keeping patients at home. So you see telemedicine centers, and as you saw, just Alexa getting HIPAA compliant, and as I mentioned, cheaper point of care tests. And then pharma and medical device, right? The last two, I would say pharma in terms of the business model, they're still testing out the what they call beyond the pill, going beyond the pill. But the most immediate need is actually a lot of what companies like yours are working on, uh, better discovery tools, uh, use of tech for improving cell therapy, gene therapy, manufacturing, better and faster enrollment, better trial design, some of the things I mentioned before, and, and also product differentiation, similar to my sugar acquisition or uh, where you know you want to differentiate your sales of insulin from another company or medication adherence services because again if you have the medication adherence piece you can show increase in um, in outcomes uh, together with the pill and then the lastly is the medical device so it just like is in therapeutics product differentiation here it's a bit through a different way right it's more of using sensors and integrating sensors and into the medical device so you can detect infection you can predict recovery, and of course, making better surgery tools and surgery through AR and VR and incorporating other tech tools. Wow. Yeah. So it's quite a landscape. <laughs> yeah. I'm reminded of the advice of uh, Julie Yu, who's also affiliated with uh, Andreessen Horowitz's um, healthcare crew. And, and her, her advice was, in healthcare IT, you better know your market segment. Yes, you certainly do. That is absolutely, that is absolutely, but that is sadly in, in healthcare, that is only the start yeah. of understanding the business model. Well, maybe, maybe we can talk about something I know a little, a little more about of, which is, is sort of the um, drug discovery tools and actual drug discovery space. I'm curious what your perspective is on actually Big Pharma's attitude towards the, the kind of wave of, of startups that are aiming to make a difference here. What kind of appetite do you see from the, the Big Pharma? And, and frankly, how do you, what do you think is the kind of optimal win-win deal structure when small companies want to engage with, with the big drug companies? Yeah, so so it's interesting, right? Um, the uh, the attitude has, I have to say, from big pharma has shifted a lot, and I have to say, frankly, I had the same attitude coming from therapeutics as big pharma did. I, I know my background is, you know, from Pfizer and and Roche and venture investing in therapeutics, and so when about five years ago, when Google reached out to me, I actually declined initially. I saw many wellness apps. I didn't see any true applications at that time for life sciences that I thought were going to be viable and and accepted and can be actually used. But that attitude has changed quite a bit. I think when we started thinking, okay, we in life sciences, we usually traditionally start with, before we start with chemistry, we think of biology, right, biomedical engineering, and we think of clinical workflows. We don't really think of, at least we didn't, think of software applications except beyond, of course, IT, right? Uh, you always thought of it in IT and your diagnostic equipment and enterprise solutions. As an example, if you wanted to make your diag- read of diagnostic lab equipment better and, and, and find efficiencies, if you understood IT piece was important, but not so much in drug discovery or, or therapeutic development. However, we also knew at the same time, and, and that knowledge and, and recognition is certainly true today, is that clinical trials really are not done and have not been 
been done in the in the most logical and the best way, right? We still, I mean, going back to discovery, we still don't know a lot about many diseases. We know that there are factors outside of genomics that are important, which we haven't taken into account before, like social determinants of health, omics, environmental. We look at behavioral data, also data that's captured continuously, right, which is also important uh, for patients. So we saw, and, and I saw myself, a, a gradual, very gradual shift as more of these types of tools became available that emerged. And, and we also saw a need from the pharma in that. So so certainly there is a, that was the attitude before, and it has certainly changed. But still, even given that, we still need to see more data from all of these companies. Yeah, that's, I guess, another challenge, right, is drug discovery is not only a team sport, but a very long one, a long game. It's like the cricket. Exactly. It's like the that's industrial right. version of cricket, if we're going to use the sports analogy. So it, it'll probably be a while before we see the, the proof in the pudding from a lot of these initiatives. That's right. But, you know, and but the one thing that we do see, which is something that we didn't see even two, three years ago, is a willingness of both the tech players and the big pharma players and biotech players to really work together. I remember when we were looking at Roche at a very large pharmaceutical company, some of the first hires in from soft pure software engineering, and that was considered a little bit a little bit of a different approach <laughs> to drug discovery and development. But now this is something that is quite accepted. Pharma companies have their own chief digital officers. They have amazing groups of data scientists, software engineers internally. And they're also willing and, and excited and actually will, you know, and, and do partner up with tech companies in therapeutic discovery and development. Yeah, that's right. So you know, Jeannie Alice is actually a founding member of the Alliance for AI in Healthcare, and it's a, a really interesting consortium of companies of all size, but there are a fair number of startups. And so this is something my colleagues and I are very interested in understanding and exploring and frankly, innovating ourselves as in the, uh, the way that we interface with big pharma companies and, and smaller pharma companies too, for that matter. How about the investor community? So how do you think the investor community is, is feeling about this space? Because it's new and it's risky, but there's a lot of promise. So I would say, so different, it depends on which investor, right? So there's still hesitancy among biotech investors, for example, to invest in digital therapies, right? And investing in, for example, in payer or provider tools. So biotech investors basically are sticking to what they know, which makes a lot of sense. They're sticking with discovery tools. Some started also investing in clinical development space. And, and all of that is consistent with the investment thesis. And, and I think it's the best way for biotech companies to deploy funds and, and also leverage a lot of their knowledge, especially those biotech investors or incubating companies, because they could provide a lot of therapeutic knowledge and experience in, to those digital discovery companies. So I think that that's a good place for them to go into. Tech companies, interestingly, and tech investors, they have recognized just that therapeutic investment is a great opportunity. So many are actually going straight into biotech investments and not necessarily biotech as in a convergence of biotech and, and digital. But certainly the, many have gone there as well. But I think that they do recognize that, hey, you know, you're, yes, the timing may be longer, but the upside is larger as well. And, and you have a clear business model there. And I think as we see as revenue generating models actually begin to emerge in some of those areas, specifically actually in the areas that I mentioned, and companies start going through, I would say what they do right now, you see many companies kind of do simple piloting, right? And once they start going into real clinical validation, once they get through FDA approvals, once they have some real exits from strategics, 
they don't have to be big, but actual exits from strategic. Uh, there'll be more investment, but there still needs to be quite a bit of help on the biotech therapeutic side, which is what I'm very passionate about, is actually helping those entrepreneurs, young companies, not just recognizing here's the business model, but recognizing also just like in tech, maybe that business model is not there yet. The incentives are not aligned yet, but let's go and, and actually work within the framework, the regulatory framework that we have in healthcare, because we have to do it. <laughs> and work within that framework and make a great product, great product for patients. And then, um, and then we'll see if we can commercialize. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're making a drug or a digital tool or whatever, it, it has to be about the, the customer, right? And the experience. And so if it, if it doesn't work and doesn't differentiate, you're sunk. Exactly. Let me shift gears a little bit. I, I want to talk about you a little bit. So your degree anyway, your terminal degree is, is a, a law degree. How did you mm -hmm. get into the life science side of things? Can you kind of walk us through your, your professional development and, and where you started? And did you have like a biology undergrad degree? Is this what you always wanted to do? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I am um, I I'm actually an accidental lawyer, um, and uh, my parents were not too happy about that. I can tell you, um, but I, um, I I come to law from if it's more the question is more of why why did I uh, do law uh, in the first place? Because I have always loved science and really always actually interested excited about medicine. I mean, even to the extent that I when I was in college, uh, one way that I paid through college was by being an EMT. Um, wow. and cause I, yeah, I wanted to be, um, I got certified and I worked and I, uh, wanted to be closer to patients. I was always very curious actually about just people and their journey and in, in health and life. And so I studied sciences as an undergrad and, uh, I actually, you know, as I said, got into law by really by accident. I was actually not best writer. Um, English was not my first language. And, you know, not only that, I actually came from a legal system that was quite different than that in the United States. So when I finished my undergrad and I was in Boston, you know, as you recall, 20 years ago, Cambridge looked pretty different than it does today. And, you know, innovation, at least according at the time to my biochemistry thesis advisor, um, he said innovation is an IP in intellectual property law. So that's how I got into law. He was a great mentor and I listened to him. And um, so I went into law and, and believe it or not, I actually ended up really enjoying law. I ended up really enjoying the practice of law. Um, I practiced law at the big firm called Wilmer Hale uh, for over seven years, and I loved it. And I understood I was a litigator, and I kind of, it helped me really understand the importance of IP and regulation and biotech and life sciences. So think of it as I started as this love medicine, love science, love innovation, and, and law for me was that grounding that I, I'm actually grateful for even today because it helps me really, it has to this day helped me understand sort of the value of, of IP, the value of regulatory better. So it actually made me a better investor and a better company builder. No, no that's fantastic. I mean, without people who are, are sort of polymaths like yourself, it doesn't work. Otherwise, we literally are just stuck with academic science, which you know, it is interesting, but it doesn't, it doesn't impact people's lives the same way. You have to be savvy about the IP and the commercialization side for sure. That's right. And, and that's why, you know, it's interesting because tech also what it made me realize is sometimes, you know, and I hear this quite a bit in the digital health space, I hear people in the therapeutic space usually make 
at times become frustrated with software and hardware engineers and vice versa. People from tech become frustrated with the scientists. And, and I think it, you know, that legal background kind of gave me a different lens to, to look through that. And, you know, it's a very different type of training and very different type of way that you go and get to a product. And a lot of it does come down to IP and regulatory, which are exactly the opposite in tech and in biotech. You know, usually my advice to team building is um, be respectful and, and try to learn from each other because they come from very different worlds. Okay, prediction time. I'd like to know what you think uh, the field of digital health and precision medicine looks like uh, next year, three years, five years, however far out you're willing to uh, shake the magic eight ball. Yeah, so I think, you know, it, it's interesting, right? I there's definitely in the areas where I mentioned that in self-insured employer and Medicare Advantage markets uh, where we have established or going to establish some value-based care model, you will have a lot of the chronic disease management and provider tools emerging, but also consolidating because ultimately in chronic disease management, we are at the end of the day, real human beings and patients, and we don't usually have one disease or one chronic disease. Uh, many of the Many of the patients where you can truly improve outcomes have major comorbidities of three, four, five different diseases, you know, heart failure, diabetes, COPD, and others. So it's, I see the, the emerging of many of those tools for one super tool that will make a real difference in patients' lives. I also see the, that the exits are going to come from where strategics are going next, which is those three areas that I mentioned. Uh, the exits are actually going to, I know there are many tools that are being built right now more for payers and for services, but actually many of the exits will be will actually be in the pharma, biotech, diagnostic, and med device provider mm-hmm. sort of knowledge management piece. Exciting times. Luba, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a ton. Coming from the science side, there's always a lot more to learn about the business and the law of all this. Uh, thanks very much. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been episode 11 of Talking Precision Medicine. Thanks for listening.